Welcome, sympathetic listeners, to the Sympathetic People podcast. Right, so I'm going to do a bit of a reading. I'm going to read a few excerpts from the same text, and I will just tell you what the text is this time. Uh, It's the foreword by Norman Doidge, who is a neuroscientist who's very uh, famous for his works on neuroplasticity. So he wrote the books The Brain That Changes uh, Itself and um, The Brain's Way of Healing is his latest book. It's the foreword to Jordan Peterson's new Uh book, uh, 12 Rules for Life. And yeah, as I say, that foreword is written by Norman Doidge. And I'll just read a few short excerpts. Um, So I'm jumping around a little bit within the foreword. And then I'll just quickly uh, perhaps mention the concepts that I think are there that are potentially worth discussing. And I've just had a coffee delivery from my lovely wife. So we'll see. How that affects me throughout the course of this conversation. Okay. Is Norman Doidge related to David Doidge in any way? No, it's Doidge, D-O-I-D-G-E, whereas Deutsch is Deutsch like German. I will begin. Uh, In a world where students are taught to see evolution and religion as simply opposed by thinkers like Richard Dawkins, Jordan showed his students how evolution, of all things, helps to explain the profound psychological appeal and wisdom of many ancient stories, from Gilgamesh to the life of the Buddha, Egyptian mythology, and the Bible. He showed, for instance, how stories about journeying voluntarily into the unknown, the hero's quest, mirror universal tasks for which the brain evolved. He respected the stories, was not reductionist, and never claimed to exhaust their wisdom. If he discussed a topic such as prejudice or its emotional relatives' fear and disgust or the differences between the sexes on average, he was able to show how these traits evolved and why they survived. Above all, he alerted his students to topics rarely discussed in university, such as the simple fact that all the ancients, from Buddha to the biblical authors, knew what every slightly worn-out adult knows, that life is suffering. If you are suffering, or someone close to you is, that's sad. But alas, it's not particularly special. We don't suffer only because, quote, politicians are dim-witted, unquote, or, quote, the system is corrupt, unquote, or because you and I, like almost everyone else, can legitimately describe ourselves in some way as a victim of something or someone. It's because we're born human that we're guaranteed a good dose of suffering. And chances are... If you or someone you love is not suffering now, they will be within five years, unless you are freakishly lucky. Rearing kids is hard, work is hard, aging, sickness and death are hard, and Jordan emphasised that doing all that totally on your own, without the benefit of a loving relationship, or wisdom, or the psychological insights of the greatest psychologist, only makes it harder. He wasn't scaring the students, in fact they found this frank talk reassuring because in the depths of their psyches, most of them knew what he said was true, even if there was never a forum to discuss it. Perhaps because the adults in their lives had become so naively overprotective that they deluded themselves into thinking that not talking about suffering would in some way magically protect their children from it. Alright, next excerpt. The hunger among many younger people for rules, or at least guidelines 
is greater today for good reason. In the West, at least, millennials are living through a unique historical situation. They are, I believe, the first generation to have been so thoroughly taught two seemingly contradictory ideas about morality simultaneously, at their schools, colleges and universities, by many in my own generation. This contradiction has left them at times disoriented and uncertain, without guidance and, more tragically, deprived of riches they don't even know exist. The first idea or teaching is that morality is relative, at best a personal value judgment. Relative means there is no absolute right or wrong in anything. Instead, morality and the rules associated with it are just a matter of personal opinion or happenstance. Relative to, or related to, a particular framework, such as one's ethnicity, one's upbringing, or the culture or historical moment one is born into. It's nothing but an accident of birth. According to this argument, now a creed, history teaches that religions, tribes, nations, and ethnic groups tend to disagree about fundamental matters and always have. Today, the postmodernist left makes the additional claim that one group's morality is nothing but its attempt to exercise power over another group. So, the decent thing to do, once it becomes apparent how arbitrary your and your society's moral values are, is to show tolerance for people who think differently and who come from different, diverse backgrounds. That emphasis on tolerance is so paramount that for many people, one of the worst character flaws a person can have is to be quote, judgmental, unquote. And since we don't know right from wrong, or what is good, just about the most inappropriate thing an adult can do is give a young person advice about how to live. And so, a generation has been raised untutored in what was once called aptly practical wisdom, which guided previous generations. Okay, and the last excerpt. Modern moral relativism has many sources. As we in the West learned more history, we understood that different epochs had different moral codes. As we traveled the seas and explored the globe, we learned of far-flung tribes on different continents whose moral codes made sense relative to, or within the framework of, their societies. Science played a role too, by attacking the religious view of the world and thus undermining the religious grounds for ethics and rules. Materialist social science implied that we could divide the world into facts, which all could observe and were objective and, quote, real, unquote, and values, which were subjective and personal. Then we could first agree on the facts and maybe one day develop a scientific code of ethics, which has yet to arrive. Moreover, by implying that values had a lesser reality than facts, science contributed in yet another way to moral relativism, for it treated value as secondary. But the idea that we can easily separate facts and values was and remains naive, to some extent, one's values determine what one will pay attention to and what will count as a fact. The idea that different societies had different rules and morals was known to the ancient world too, and it is interesting to compare its response to this realisation with the modern response, which is relativism, nihilism and ideology. When the ancient Greeks sailed to India and elsewhere, they too discovered that rules, morals and customs differed from place to place, and saw that the explanation for what was right and wrong was often rooted in some ancestral authority. The Greek response was not despair, but a new invention, philosophy. Okay, that's the end of the reading. Um, so, so I think there's obviously like a bunch of stuff we could, we could discuss there, but um, I've just written evolution and religion, life is suffering, rules and judgment, adult advice to kids, relativism, 
and the Greeks and India philosophy and the interconnectedness of the ancient world, which we probably won't get to, but okay. it would be an interesting <laughs> talk. I feel like, you know, to start with, I feel like he's a bit strawmanning the uh, no actual argument. I mean, which is, yeah. I guess, inevitable because mm. he disagrees with it and therefore he doesn't, uh, you know, spend time to engage with the, you know, plethora of voices in that, mm. in the, you know, current movement, I guess, on morality. But uh, the general gist, like, it can be, you know, made true, but I'm not sure if, uh, what he means would be that, if you know what I mean. So when you say he's but, strawmanning, you mean he's strawmanning the sort of postmodern relativist argument? Well, more like, you know, millennials' argument. Sure. More like, you know, they would, because they seem to be, you know, maybe they, um, they not millennials, but they, this, you know, movement, I don't know. I don't know, like, whether it calls itself even a movement, because obviously mm -hmm. they think of themselves as the world. So... Sure. Uh, but this trend in, uh, you know, moral, uh, like, approach is a moral relativism, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, the way they, uh, you know, act is they act as if there is good and wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, as if there is yes, absolute yeah. right, and that absolute right is to minimize the suffering, is to, you know, to protect those who are oppressed and to equilibrate the powers to the balance of whatever yeah you know so they they do have a clear view for themselves what is right and what is wrong is it, it clear it's not apparent in huh? i said is it clear for themselves they certainly have a, a moral compass yes oh yeah i mean they if anything they are they're suffering from you know um mm. like kind of you know illusion of lucidity i would say yeah i mean we all suffer yeah. from it to some degree but they think that they see everything very lucid. Mm. That they, I mean, as usual, it's like the case, you know, since the beginning of times. Like <laughs> this, now we have found the truth. This is the truth. And it's super clear. And so we don't even need any dissenting voices. And we don't need any other opinions because this is the truth. Like, they're very clear on that. Mm. No, I think you're very... It's very correct what you're saying. I think that it, it's a it's a not just hyper lucidity, but it is actually hyper moralizing. You know, they are moralizing. They're trying to take the moral high ground. Thus, they clearly believe that there is such a place as the moral high ground. So it's not purely relativistic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it's it's not the only contradiction contradiction in there. You know, mm. I don't think they have a philosophy per se. Mm. I think you know it's. As any ideology, it's not meant to be coherent. It's meant to be active. It's meant to be, you know, to do something. And, you know, for instance, you know, the tolerance thing, right? So they say you should not be, you know, judgmental, but they're very judgmental. Mm -hmm. They're like, if you're, not, if you're not adherent to their idea of tolerance, you are being judged. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the fact that, you know... If somebody accuses you of being judgmental, this is a judgment. This is a person who's being judgmental towards you. So, yeah, I, I, like, this is part of yeah. why I, to some extent, think I do think that there is an influence of postmodernism in this current movement. Um, you know, this movement that Deutsch is talking about of millennials and, you know, social justice warriors and all of that. But I think that some of these older academics uh, actually over-attribute 
the role of postmodernism there and the role of, you know, central tenets of postmodernism like relativism. Uh, it, it's essentially that they see the targets of their generation and they see the predictions that they made, which is that this postmodern philosophy would have these dire consequences. And now when they see consequences that resemble those that they predicted, they pin a lot of it on postmodernism. But exactly as you're pointing out, there's a great deal going on here that's nothing to do with that. I mean, can we blame utilitarianism? You know, they're so concerned with the suffering of others. They want to minimize suffering. The problem is that they don't really know how to do that, and they don't know how to play a long... And maybe nobody knows how to do do that, but they don't know how to play the long game. You know, they want to reduce every instance of suffering in the moment right now, so they want to rush to comfort the crying baby... Um, when maybe letting a baby cry for a while is in fact an important, you know, growing experience for that baby. You know, he did talk about overprotectiveness of parents, you know, and we talk about the snowflake generation or people who've been wrapped in cotton wool. And I think that that's very apt, but I don't think that all that's not all coming out of postmodernism and it's not all coming out of Marxism. You know, postmodernism as an extension of Marxism, as so many of these guys like to paint it. I yeah. think I think that's all mixed in there. I just don't think it's necessarily the overarching ideology. I think we're, it's something new, which is a blend of of lots of different things. Yeah, I think like you know, there is a lot of things that are coming together here, uh, but like I don't think you know postmodernism would have had such an impact before mm. so i think you know it, it just falls into fertile soil but also you know the fact that uh, we uh, like as a humanity we were going towards this you know since the students revolutions in 60s in the like late 60s this is all you know the progression towards that it's you know uh, like the um i mean there are just so many factors right the uh, as usual the fact that we now, I mean, is in Western civilization, are living really, really nicely, right? Mm. So previously, the suffering of, you know, just the being, you know, you're suffering for, you know, having something to eat or, you know, mm. having a good job to pay for your wages. Like this philosophy wouldn't blossom in the 30s, right, in America. It wouldn't blossom in, you know, after the war because there would be, you know, the situation is completely different and the mechanics of society are completely different. But right now, so... It just allows for it to be because, you know, like people who go, and you know, like white Americans, right, who uh, grow in, you know, reasonable, most of the time, I guess, in reasonable safety and, you know, they have this prolonged childhood and then they're dipped into the university life and then they, you know, dipped into adult life and they have to deal with it somehow. And then suddenly they realize two things. First, life is not that easy. Mm. And B, for a lot of people, life is harder. And so they, you know, reconcile it, you know, via various means, one of which is to use this, uh, you know, like postmodernist ideology and say that, you know, the everybody should have as privileged position as I do, as I had, and I am supposed to have that position for the rest of my life. Mm. Like, the prolonged childhood that I have is, in fact, the way things should be. Mm. And the 
But they kind of miss the idea that, you know, they were shielded by their parents for that entire time. And everything was dealt, you know, with, like, the reality was dealt, you know, by their parents. They didn't interact with, you know, society at large. And so um, now they want the state to come in and shield them from reality, basically. Mm. They want to have, you know, prolonged childhood for their entire life. And that for everybody else. And so everybody who says to them, you should grow up, you should, you know, face the truth, you should, well, quote unquote truth, you should be strong. <laughs> for them, it's like blasphemy because this is, you know, that's not the reality they believe in. And, uh, I mean... Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a very salient point that, you know, living conditions are just so good these days. I mean, I think it's 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 the culmination of a much longer process than, you know, stretching back to the 60s. I mean, it goes back to abolition and obviously the suffragette movement. And, and you know, it goes back, no doubt, way, way further than that as well. Um, but I think, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why it's so confused is because there is, you know, the second part of what George was talking about there, or the second note that I've made is this idea that life is suffering. And, you know, when our ancestors or when people in other parts of the world are suffering because they, they can't get enough to eat or because they are, you know, running away from predators or, you know, members of nearby tribes or, you know, they have very, very salient um, you know, risks to avoid every day, um, very, very important goals to achieve every day, find food or, you know, find enough food for the winter or starve to death, you know, that kind of life in which just the basic mechanics of survival are very much at the fore, you know, of course you're suffering, but you're not at all confused about, you know, the sources of your suffering. You just have a, a normal animal level of suffering associated with the struggle for existence. And I guess the interesting thing is that when you take away the struggle for existence, you don't take away the suffering. So people are still suffering, and because I think that there are, you know, physiological limits on, on how much you can suffer, I think people can suffer just as, as badly in a very, very benign circumstance as they could in the worst possible of circumstances. You know, so people have a kind of quota for suffering that gets filled because, you know, it's a truism, obviously, but because life is suffering. Um, and people are very confused now. They were raised to believe that they didn't have to suffer. They didn't suffer a lot yeah. as kids when things were taken care of and they weren't asking, you know, big questions. What do I do with my life? And they weren't, you know, they were just, they weren't encountering a lot of the challenges of the world, as, as you pointed out and as Deutsch pointed out. Um, now that they're headbutting, you know, they're butting straight into all these challenges, um, you know, and even having to budget to pay bills and, you know, all of these just things that we have to do in the modern world, which, you know, we prefer not to have to do, uh, they're, they're ill-equipped to deal with it. And it's much noisier. The signal of suffering, you know, what's causing suffering is much more confusing and chaotic now because it's not these very basic, you know, questions of survival. So people are looking for stories to attach to their suffering now. Um, and that's when things like identity politics can become really, really um, 
you know, very influential, very overblown, because they make a lot of sense as stories about suffering. Oh, I'm suffering because I'm not part of the in-group. You know, identity politics and conspiracy theories are intimately related phenomena. You know, the basic premise is that I am not where I want to be or where I should be or where I deserve to be or whatever because I am not part of the, you know, I'm not high enough up the dominance hierarchy in some structure that has ossified long before I was ever born, or I'm not part of the, the secret in-group, or, you know, if, if you've got, I mean, you, conspiracy theory is going gonna, is gonna to flourish, you know, particularly bizarre conspiracy theories even, in situations where you're not part of any obvious minority, you've really had everything um, laid out for you, but you're still not where you want to be, you're still suffering, it clearly isn't your fault, and you cast around for something, so, oh, it must be the secret society, it must be the Illuminati, or whatever, but, yeah, I just think it's interesting, that overlap between conspiracy theorising and identity politics more broadly. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, there is obviously, uh, you know, there are obviously groups of individuals who actively work for, you know, their own profit. Of course. I mean, that's, you know, essential. We are still, you know, divided in tribes, and so, you know, there are like, uh, you know, like kind of open conspiracies. Like we're all aware that, you know, banks work for themselves, right? So banks try to profit on us. Mm. I mean, they, you know, obviously offer services and they try to make it so that we work with them. But essentially their goal is to make money for themselves. And obviously, you know, you, whenever you have a closed, you know, group, like a closed tribe, it's whether consciously or unconsciously will be working for its own benefits. Uh, but the uh, trick is that it's, uh, there are no kind of, you know, it's not like there is one tribe, I don't know, whatever, you know, white males or Illuminati mm. that are actively trying to undermine everybody else. It's more like, you know, this is a system of tribes. Mm. And, you know, as soon as you assign yourself to a certain tribe, you start to work for the benefits of that tribe against the benefits of others who, you know, like compete with you for, you know, resources or whatever. Or information, if that matters, or like you know, which is a resource, anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the fact that you know resources are finite, essentially, you know that uh, these, uh, you know, like if you say, hey, you know, white males are, uh, you know, the reason why you know women are suffering, and so women should rally against, then the you, the you still have the conflict. It's not like you're eliminating the conflict. You still like you like you more you know feeding into it mm. because then you know you have you know whatever active females then fighting with males and then you incite the conflict from the other side as well. Sure. And whether it was there in the first place is a different story, but it's definitely here now. Yeah, you when uh, you make a target so, when you make a target yeah. you you reify you so kind of make very, that real. Yeah. So it's very easy, you know, like all the narratives that include an enemy, they're very easy to um, kind of have because there is some underpinning reality. Mm. There is something that is actually real. And so what but you just have to ignore, A, the conflict that your own group is creating, and B, you have to ignore all the other conflicts happening in the world. So in all of this, you know, uh, like you know, types of philosophy, whether it's communism, whether it's, you know, uh, whatever, French Revolution types of ideas, whether it's, you know, the ideas of common people now, I mean, some of them, whatever, the, 
Leon. It's uh, <laughs> like the, common the simplification. Yeah, I mean, common as in like you know, not like you know, Gen- layman, general elite, public, but common, a general public. Yes, <laughs> it's uh, the uh, oversimplification of reality, mm. which is also understandable because it's hard to perceive reality in its complexity. <laughs> like you know. It's it's really freaking hard. It's you know trying to to understand the social discourse at this present moment is incredibly hard. There are so many uh, you know players. There are so many different views. But if you oversimplify it to us and them, everything becomes very clear. You you know where you stand. You know where you should go. Like it just becomes easy. Um, but the thing that you necessarily have to oversimplify is the history, and history oversimplifies every time in the very same way. It's like, mm. before now, it was bad. It was really, really bad. Now we have an idea how to make it better, so we will make it better. Well... Like, it doesn't even <laughs> take a slightest, you know, uh, doubt in the fact that maybe in the past things were better in some mm. sense, well, I hang on. No, I, I, it was always. Yeah, no, I've got to push back on that, obviously, because I think that there's exactly the opposite impulse is also always really, really strong. And we've discussed this previously on the podcast. <laughs> there's always nostalgia. Every society has its, you know, dreams of a golden age. So a lot of people think it was better in the past, actually. And, you know, part of the issue that we have. I mean, you could, you could say that the progressivism conservatism divide is partly on this. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like I was, I was like, you know, com- saying more like about the you know radical progressivist mm. ideas, like they all share this train. Well, it's actually a really interesting point to, to think about though, because we see quite a lot of um, public debates on the topic of whether you know whether the world's coming to an end, but sort of whether. Um, well, there's one particular one that I read, which was you know mankind's best days lie ahead. Um, so we see a lot of public debate between optimists and pessimists and those who believe that things are really bad now, there's an elevation of suffering in the world, there's a real crisis, and of course there are these existential threats coming up on the horizon, you know, from climate change to AI. Um, and the interesting thing is that we, we often see that the optimists are... Well, often scientists, um, see a lot of scientific optimists, and they're often in some way associated with free market capitalism. They obviously believe that this has been a successful system for bettering uh, the situation of, of a lot of people, bringing people out of poverty, etc. And that's very strongly opposed with this you know, diaphanous movement that we've started talking about here, whether it's, you know, postmodernist or, you know, post-Marxist. I mean, there's always a big socialist and anti-capitalist element to that. And so I don't think those people, and I'm not sure if you were attributing it to them, but, in, you know, in the context of this conversation, I don't think those people 
that movement that we've started talking about, would necessarily say that the present is better than the past. I think that in a lot of ways they would say the opposite. Um, they would say that there's so much suffering now that, you know, fascism is is behind every door and, you know, racism and sexism are rampant and we have a rape culture and all these sorts of things. And I think, I mean, to your point, I do think there's a great deal of historical ignorance there, but I think that's because on every one of those measures, the present is much better than the past. It's just a fallacy of perfection, though. I mean, the past... You know, you can obviously accuse me yeah. here. The past is a pretty diverse um, place. You know, there have been a lot of different situations over time. But I think we have improved on a lot of those metrics in measurable ways. Um, that this movement, because they still see suffering, because things are not perfect, there is this fallacy of perfection, which is that you know, sexism must be rampant because it exists, you know, it must be worse than it's ever been or, you know, or racism or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, because they, they don't have, you know, a, a good idea about the past, but they have, you know, somewhat better idea about the present, <laughs> even though, you know, like trying, like, you know, just it's impossible for a single human being to understand what's happening in the present. And it's, in, and we are present in the present, right? Mm. So it's somewhat harder to in, understand what's what were happening in the past in some way, but then it's easier because mm. it was already analyzed. So mm. you can understand what other people are thinking about what happened in the past, but you have no idea what actually was happening there, right? And I think but the present... people not even going... Not, yeah. The, the present is pregnant with They're the not, future. So, sorry to keep yeah. interrupting you, but so I think that one of the things that makes the present so difficult to understand is because understanding of the present is inherently tied with ability to predict the future. And because things are changing so, so rapidly now, uh, you know, the world is, is so complex and it has always been very complex and any present would have been diff difficult to understand. But it's pretty hard to argue that the event horizon uh, has ever been, you know, our ability to predict the future is vastly more, I would say, than it ever has been before. But at the same time, the, the future is just changing. I mean, the potential future um, is, is so diverse that it's so impossible to predict it. And many people have commented that this is, this is a relatively unique period in human history for that reason. You know, if you go to a randomly chosen period of the past, like pre-industrial revolution, then, you know, and you asked someone what the world would be like for their children, then they would say, well, it will be like it was for me. And so, I mean, that brings us to, yeah. to, to one of the points, skipping over a couple, but we might come back to rules and judgment, but adult advice to kids. And, and you know, Doidge is sort of, he's saying, you know, implying that obviously adults should be giving advice to their kids and that this idea that adults are not able to provide good advice to their kids is one of the, the bad symptoms or even bad, you know, uh, causative processes that's leading to this current um, issue. But, and I, and I would agree with him, but at the same time, it's also never been more true that the world in which adults of now grew up in and learned to move through is probably going to be radically different from the world that their children live in. And so yeah. there's only so far, like that advice 
will be good at the level of basic principles, but it might not be good at the level of specifics and what kids learn in school mm -hmm. might not be that useful, etc. Well, I mean, it will be useful because, you know, maths won't change, I guess. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and as well as economic forces won't change and, you know, chemistry won't change. But the uh, I don't think it was ever, you know, as the same, different. I don't think it was ever different from, you know, this. I think it was always the case that adults, you know, were trying to give advice to Young and Young was saying, just fuck off, we know better. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it was always like that. You know, there is a, uh, like book in Russia, like, you know, quite a prominent Russian book written in 19th century, which is basically called Fathers and Sons, you know, and it's just about that. So, it, and, you know, at that point, it was about nihilism. So there was a generation who was just like, you know, nihilistic. So nihilism as a philosophy was emerging. And the conflict was about that. Then, you know, so it's the same conflict. They were saying, you don't know, mm. adult. We know. You don't know. You are old and obsolete. And uh, I guess it was, you know, like, it's just, the, you know, the conditions of human nature that mm. you reject the, uh, you know, wisdom of, not wisdom, but the knowledge of your uh, parents. You know, uh, I, I definitely think that that's true. And there are but probably useful yeah, like, evolved reasons for that to do with changing yeah. environments. However, I also think it's true that I think it's inarguable that the world is now changing more rapidly than it ever has before but, in any period of human yeah, history. I, I, would, I would argue with that, yeah. but uh, I, I would say that, you know, your advice in the, uh, you know, pre-World pre -world War mm. would be, if you're an adult, you know, say, going through World War, then you have your kid who is growing up in the 60s, your advice is equally invalid because the whole idea of how you should behave has changed. Mm. However, the general wisdom of life hasn't changed at all since the beginning of humanity. The way, you know, what it is to be a human, you know, how to, you know, treat other humans, how to treat yourself, how to, you know, grow stronger, how to... You know, what will, you know, happen to your life? Like, you will inevitably die. You will inevitably grow old. And, yeah, I mean, maybe we'll change it with science in some times to come. But it hasn't yet still, you know, be the case. And we all will die. We all will grow old. We all be weak. We all will suffer from illnesses, you know, and so on and so on. And so we all get angry. We all, you know, are compassionate at some point. So the way... You know, to treat others and the way to treat ourselves is always the case, is the same. And so, I guess that's the only wisdom that you know, an adult can give to his kid is to explain that in some sense. Mm. So, like you know, some guideline of how to be, you know, inside, mm. not the, in, you know, what to do with your job or you know how to, uh, you know. I don't know, make money. Not like that, mm. but... So it should be at the level of principles more than at the level yeah. of specific, factual information. I don't think information. it's so much as principles. It's more like, you know, to try to convey an understanding that you can only get through living. Like, this is the only thing, you know, in its essence that adult has more than a kid is that that adult has, you know, battled with life for longer and that adult has you know, tr kind of, you know, reconciled himself with this body for longer. And so he knows the way the body behaves and the way that the bodies of others behave better. And so, 
like you know in an intricate way not just mechanical way but that as well mm-hmm. so like to convey that understanding is the only thing you can do essentially yeah well and that's essentially what i meant by by principles um <laughs> that kind of more more abstract more universal conceptual understanding of the world rather than you know very specific pieces of advice so yeah i mean i would completely agree that there are there are obviously a lot of things you know humans are extremely altricial babies as we we very well know they're very underdeveloped they need to acquire a great deal of um of competency from their their parents or from adult role models in the early years of their lives in order to be able to function at all and i don't think that's at all avoidable but yeah the the specific kind of of advice and that, i think that's very difficult for people from kids to adults to you know to their parents to tease apart you know which are the things that the parents really do have some kind of authoritative knowledge or perspective on and which are the sorts of things which are you know merely contingent aspects of the world in which the parent grew up uh and that are going to be completely irrelevant for the kid and then you throw in those other things obviously you throw in that natural rebellion that you mentioned and you also throw in an increasing understanding of the fallibility of parents as kids get older and perhaps you know in some households one of the deep principles that is taught to the kids and i would say this is a good thing is the fallibility of everyone is some kind of you know um fallibilist uh model of of how to understand the world uh and basically critical thinking skills which again just like mathematics and chemistry as you very appropriately pointed out i don't see critical thinking changing at all i see the substrate maybe changing but the principles uh the ways we can come to to have better understanding and and you know approach knowledge uh are unlikely to change um I'll jump jumping back to the note on rules and judgment um again you know i said before that uh because we are now removed i mean you actually made the, the point initially because we're now removed from the sort of bare necessities sort of life which ha- would have you know dominated our entire evolutionary history up until the very very recent past um in those times we would have we would have had rules and the uh, applicability of those rules would have been very very apparent to us by experience you know there would there would be a lot of rules that you know don't go over the hill into the valley of the next tribe because people don't come back when that happens you know there would be a lot of rules you know don't bend down at the water's edge and and collect water or or wash because there are crocodiles in the river you know there would have been a lot of rules that really admitted of no transgression you know if if you if you transgress those rules the chances of death were very very high and so you know and maybe in every generation there was someone who broke the rules and didn't come back and so rules would have been relatively simple and easy to understand um whereas i think doidge sort of makes the point that we've had this undermining a little bit of the idea of rules and structure but perhaps 
we really, really need it now more than ever. We need a kind of abstract set of rules and principles and, you know, ways of honing our discernment. So ability to, you know, use these words which are so often negative, our ability to discriminate and our ability to judge is actually very, very important. But in some sense, because the world is so noisy, we need an abstract set of rules that we just follow no matter what, even though, you know, in any given moment, they don't necessarily have such a salient, you know, outcome as not getting eaten by a crocodile or whatever. That was probably yeah, a bit vague. But but... I think the, the difference now is that, you know, we, you can create any rule, but the uh, punishment for transgressing it is minimal unless you, you know, actively going and killing somebody. And even then, you know, the punishment for transgressing it is nowhere near the punishment that you have, would have had before. Like nobody is, you know, in very few countries you would be actually killed for that. And so the, we have created, you know, a huge buffering system. And, you know, both as in society and, you know, as like, you know, as in, on the cultural level and on the material level. So if you break any rule, the punishment is really not that much, you know, not that big. And so the, then you have a feeling that rules are just made up. You just think mm. that, you know, they're just bullshit. Because, you know, everybody else is so tolerant of you breaking the rules. For instance, you know, if you, uh, you know, go like, you know, you would have, there is some, you know, it happens now all the time right now, with some, uh, you know, dude trying to have a lecture on whatever topic that, you know, social justice warriors don't agree. The social justice warriors come up and start chanting and saying this is, you know, rubbish and we don't want him here. And the dude doesn't have a lecture. This is, you know, very tolerable scenario. If you would try to do that 20, 30 years ago, very likely those social justice warriors would be punched and, or, or, and then expelled from the university. So there would be a lot of problems for you if you're trying to do that. Now there are none. So you think that you're in the right because there is no punishment coming to you. So, you know, they kind of, you know, it's an interesting thing, you know, that we humanity have created basically a paradise for ourselves mm. and you know, in like you know, laboriously so for you know the entire history of our you know kind, we were coming here to have the life so buffered all around that you know it's so forgivable for you know any mistakes and everybody has a second chance in life and maybe you no know, third chance and so on. That now people think that basically they live in virtual reality and all the laws we have created they are just nonsense. Because it's virtual reality and you can bend it and make it whichever you like, which is not the case, but they don't see it. Mm. Yeah, well, which I guess is, is to the point that I think Deutsch was making and that I was sort of reiterating is that we, yeah, it may be harder to see the immediate effect of having a set of rules but given that we grew, we evolved in an environment in which there was strong selecting principles, there were strong selection pressures exerted by the environment that selected for sets of rules. Now those selection pressures don't exist, but we still actually require 
a rule-based, I mean, rule, you know, it's just a word, set of principles or whatever, we still require some selection principles in order to guide our behavior and in order to enable us to understand the world through which we're moving because we, you know, again, we we evolved in that sort of scenario. And what Doidge is they, saying... They have what? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that they have those sources, uh, you know, sets of rules. The only difference is that they don't accept you to give it to them. They only accept, you know, themselves to come up with them. And But they want you to behave according to those rules. So the notion, you know, is the same. It's like, these are the sets of rules. Everybody should behave according to them. The only difference is that you don't accept anybody else to give them to you. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they clearly have, as we just agreed at the beginning, they have their own set of rules. The implication, I'm just giving the, um, I guess, trying to um, extract some of the kernels of what Doidge is trying to say. Uh, he is essentially saying, or I'm extending it into an evolutionary argument, that the rules which people end up you know, gravitating towards in a relativistic framework are essentially just the rules that they happen to like for whatever reason, or of course they are influenced into liking those because of the zeitgeist, because of the general public worldview at the time. But there are no strong selecting principles working on those rules, and therefore they are, they are chaotic and people's sets of rules or sets of principles are not coherent because they're not tested uh, in any way. And so I guess the argument that Deutsch is making, or certainly the argument that Jordan Peterson is making, and Deutsch, of course, is, is discussing that, is that evolved sets of frameworks, evolved sets of rules, i.e. those that come out of the past and, you know, mapping sets of rules from different cultures against each other is very useful in a comparative or cross-cultural sense because then you can derive the ultimate set of rules and that's the idea of the, you know, I guess deriving the fundamental story like the hero's quest or, or whatever, abstracting a set of rules that works for all different circumstances but it's necessarily... And historical procedure because you're necessarily looking for rules that have worked across evolutionary time, cultural evolutionary time in this case, but rules that have been subject to selection pressures. And I think the, the thing that concerns a lot of people in that generation about relativism and, and postmodernism is that the set of rules that are being adhered to and being chosen have not been really tested. So it's a very chaotic landscape because of the claim that these are all simply stories, all stories have the same truth value, so I can choose whatever appeals to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, which, which, what I find paradoxical in this is that this is not, I mean, this is what they kind of claim on the surface, or they're, you know, actually like hierarchs would claim. Uh, but uh, the their behavior is actually at odds with that, because the behavior suggests that there is a certain truth. There is, you know, 
one like a single proper way and a single proper truth like you know the uh you know for the sake of argument the fact that you know transgender exist like this is you know a single certain truth for them from their perspective there is no it's not that you know this is our opinion and since our opinion is equally valid as your opinion yeah. we choose to stick by this opinion and choose to think that way no it's like this is truth if you don't accept this truth you are you know wrong like plainly wrong well exactly so they are real the concern is so, that when relativism gets in it's i guess it's not that this current generation are relativists exactly or they certainly shouldn't be considered as such it's the, it's it's the you know the nietzsche concern you know god is dead um the concern is that without this guiding framework from the past that certain nefarious ideologies are going to get in and are going to take over and people will become very, very fixated on those, very, very convinced of their absolute truth, etc. But those are not ideologies that have actually been tested across evolutionary time. Or to the extent that they've been tested, in, to the extent that they're linked with Marxism, um, they have failed spectacularly. Yes, they have spelled spectacular. But I mean, I don't necessarily agree that they haven't been. There are no selection pressures on them because you know there are their ideas, and they obviously you know there are selection pressures on them. Like they are constantly refined through battles with people who disagree with them, and you know they are selected for the most infectability, infectivity, whatever the infectious. How would you say that? The uh, yeah, so that they can infect, you know, the quickest, the quicker and better other minds, which is, you know, as all ideologies, as all uh, opinions evolve to. Well, so your, so your suggestion is that the, the selection pressures have been purely at the level of the memes themselves. And again, this would be the same. Yeah. This would be exactly the same yeah, concern but... that they haven't been tested in terms of their value to humans or to humanity because they've not been yeah. tested over a significant enough evolutionary time for that or in fact they've even failed like marxism in that scenario or in that context but at the level of the memes themselves they've been selected in fact by their very failures they've been selected um to become more you know transmissible more infectious more yeah. um you know manipulating yeah, they, they're, they're yeah, they're shedding all that's irrelevant. They're shedding all that's not helping them. And they're becoming, you know, this current ideology. And But I'm thinking, you know, you know, maybe that's the way to test them. Maybe, you know, like, West is due for some, you know, communist kind of a thing. Because they never have gone through that phase, you know. Uh, like, Asia has gone, you know, China is still going through that, you know. And actually, they have, you know, passed through certain stages. They developed it into working model. And, you know, USSR well, failed. Economically, but it's when, capitalist, you know. So Yeah. But, yeah, but the, you know, capitalist countries, they have never had such an, you know, radical kind of, a, you know, idea that would, you know, um, kind of, you know, uh, what's the word? Fuck. Uh, <laughs> that would compete with their main idea. You know, that mm. would challenge mm. their way of being at its core, at its, you know, core premises. 
And, you know, maybe that is the good selection for capitalism then. Maybe, you know, it's the, it, should, it should be viewed as a reaction to capitalism. And then if capitalism is indeed the best strategy, it should prevail and become better. Or if, you know, the way of, uh, you know, social justice warriors is actually the right way, maybe, you know, they will prevail. But I'm more, my kind of, you know, intuition more lies into the fact that as long as it's not disruptive towards the general functioning of human society, it will just come to fixation. You know, it will essentially become things like, you know, Christianity. It will just make a certain flavor to civilization without changing, you know, the way it is functioning in terms of its mechanics. You know, who is producing the food, who is distributing the food, who is, you know, uh, doing what and so on. Because the system right now is so, you know, complicated, it's so complex, and it has so much buffering to it, that it can withstand change of ideology as long as that ideology doesn't disrupt the mechanics of it, like the basic mechanics of it. Well, I think what makes our current situation so good is, in fact, the the plurality, I mean, is the diversity, is the fact that different ideologies can rise up to some extent, have their day, be criticised, become part of this, you know, open process of, of criticism, which, as you know, is the way I think essentially all knowledge is generated. And perhaps we can, we can jump across to, to the ancient world for a minute because I do think it ties in, or at least it ties into the, to Norman Deutsch's, um, uh, to the excerpts that I read. Uh, but I think it, it's as, again, Karl Popper discussing the open society, the whole point of the open society and what makes it, in Popper's estimation, a superior framework to any kind of, you know, fascism or, um, or, or whatever else, any sort of really uh, top-down ideological control, um, is that there, are, there is this plurality of ideas. And because none of us really understands what is the best set of ideas, all things considered, the only way to get better is to throw things in the mix and then to criticise them. I mean, a lot of people are obviously concerned that what is negative about this current social justice movement is that it brooks no criticism. It's very much like certain religious um, ideologies were, particularly in their, in their various ascendant periods or, or particularly reactionary periods. Um, it brooks no criticism. And if you try to criticise, so the story goes, if you try to criticise these things publicly, you risk being tarred and feathered. But in fact, a lot of people are criticising them publicly. And some of those people have been tarred and feathered. But for some of them, and, you know, Jordan Peterson is, is an example... Uh, that's been extremely good for their career. It's actually been extremely good for their goal of making an impact on the zeitgeist, of in fact moulding human psyches. Jordan Peterson is reaching a vastly larger audience with his set of ideas because of the fact that he was attacked by... Well, he attacked this movement, they attacked back... And now he has been elevated to the position of a, of a very, very influential public thinker. And that's what's yeah. good about our open society, is that we can have 
these movements like the social justice movement, that can be criticised, that can do their criticising, and everybody can get in on the act. Um, and the idea being that the best things, the best ideas will rise to the top. But it's, not a, it's obviously not a perfect process. I am not as concerned, as you know, as many other people are, that this social justice movement is going to take over and that we're going to we're going to go through a genuinely you know an equivalent period to communism or something like that the reason i'm not as concerned about that is very much because i have my faith in this open society model i have my faith in the fact that there's a lot of pushback and there's a lot of criticism and all things considered, I'm glad for the social justice movement because I think it, it does bring up... I mean, it's unfortunate when people's lives are ruined, but that happens with all kinds... I mean, that, unfortunately, is just a, is a fact of life. Um, and I don't mean to sound callous there at all. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. But that will happen in, an, in a relatively open society because it, it, at some level... People can make accusations, they're free to do that, and other people are free to believe those accusations. And we can't have a situation in which people aren't allowed to make accusations and people aren't allowed to believe things. Um, so we have to have faith in this idea that allowing people to express themselves is ultimately a good thing because none of us has all the answers. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, however, the idea that then you have to allow the other side to express themselves, obviously, you know, should be ingrained. In that. Of course, Which, of course. Uh, like but... that, that you know, it. I don't, you know, like I, there are certain, you know, disagreements that I have, you know, on philosophical grounds with, you know, social justice movement. Mm. Like it's not that, you know, I disagree with their goals. Essentially, some of their goals, you know, are quite good goals, yeah. right? Uh, but what I disagree essentially what just drives me crazy is their intolerance towards you know opposing opinions yeah well you like, what you're this, disagreeing this is with contraproductive you know counterproductive yeah. for the you know, evolutionary perspective you know uh, perspective and this is also counterproductive within their own ideology because if their ideology is about diversity of you know uh, everything it's also about diversity of opinions and you can't have diversity of opinions if you just shut down any dissenting voice well so i think your 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 concern your primary concern is with their ideology is to the extent that it's against this open society thing and to some extent yeah. they have some of the values of the open society like you know diversity within their model but they haven't quite understood the value of things like free speech which are really fundamental yeah. principles of this situation but of course yeah. it's it's sorry it's it's um it's inevitable that if you do have free speech as a very very high value if you do have an open society that there are going to be people that arise within that open society who say we shouldn't have free speech and we just have to yeah. criticize those people you know yeah yeah fair fair uh, just, I don't think of them as, you know, ideologically driven, mm. uh, as in like, you know, idea, like meaning driven mm. movement. I think of them as, you know, a, uh, entity, like, you know, as the ideology that is such because it's best functioning as such, not because of its meaning, not because mm. of its goals, not because of what it, you know, uh, tells that it wants to achieve. No, but because it 
best functions as an entity mm. like this organism yeah you take and, a mimetic it's a mimetic perspective that you're taking that yeah. you're saying that the primary so, thing that's i think well because i don't see how it would it is achieving its own goals by its own means i think the goals that it has are at odds with you know the means that it mm. uh, uses to achieve those goals mm. and so i don't buy it as a you know, meaningful thing. I only view it as an organism, and as that organism, I see it as a threat to, uh, you know, the open society, as you say. Mm -hmm. So, it's not that I would rally against there, but I think, you know, we should shut them down and everything. No, I think that, you, like, people inside the movement kind of are have to understand what's happening and maybe see that they're not doing what they aim to do. Yeah, and I think that the the primary recourse that we have is to the methods of the open society. You know, we'll just keep plugging this um, Karl Popper term, um, which is criticism. You know, that's the recourse that we have. The recourse that we have is in yeah. no way to embrace the idea that, oh, we need to shut these people down, that it should be illegal for them to say, or whatever. We just have to double yeah. down on our values, on our open society value of free speech, and say, of course, say whatever you want, and I will criticise yeah. what you have to say. And let's do it. Let's do it in a not reactionary way. Yeah, they, let's do it in a but way they don't, where... But they don't want to play that game. Yeah, but they don't They don't have a choice, you know. Too bad, you know. Yeah, I, too bad. well, they kind of, kind of have. They just shout over you. Uh, they, uh, like, what I, I think is the core problem is that, you know, that idea that there is a single truth, and I think mm. this is the, you know, what it shares with the religions, mm. uh, is that it's got that, you know, meme complex, that this is the truth, and so it appeals to your righteousness directly. Sure. So it's the same as, you know, everything you need to know is in the Bible, you don't need any other books. Everything you need to know is, you know, in their pamphlets, you don't need to know anything else. Uh, so that thing is problematic because, you know, it, like we're quoting, you know, and we're discussing Jordan Peterson a long time, but there are quite a bunch of things that we disagree with Jordan Peterson. Sure. There are quite a bunch of things that we disagree with, you know, anybody, mm. but their modus operandi is that if you disagree with the person in some way, this person is wrong entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So they will, you know, find a small thing and say, hey, the person is wrong there. For instance, you know, Jordan Peterson is, you know, uh, some was like was saying something, you know, like un not anti-climate change, but kind of. And it's like, hey, you know, this guy is against climate change. He's wrong. Therefore, everything he says is wrong. Yeah. Like, no. Nah. Okay. I mean, to sound, I sound like a broken record again, but our only recall, like, I, of course, I agree that that's a problem. But our only way of responding to that is within this framework of just of just criticizing it, you know, and, and just saying like Yeah, but how, how does it work out? Like, you know, for instance, uh, if you ever, hopefully never, but if just for the sake of argument, you or I find ourselves in the uh, you know, lecturing hall before giving a lecture mm. and a crowd of social justice warriors rocks up and starts chanting something mm. that is completely rubbish, like yeah. it has nothing to do with what you're actually saying, <laughs> mm -hmm. but they're like, yeah, you know, no to racism, no to... This guy should not be able to speak because he's for that, and you're not for that. What do you do? 
It's obviously a very high pressure, difficult situation. Uh, and how can we know what we will do until we're in that situation? But I can tell you what I think is in principle the best thing to do. I can't say that I will do that because I think I'll be upset by this. I will do my best not to allow my emotions to get the better of me. So I will do the best to stick to what I think are the best values. They're really epistemological virtues, you know, so virtues of knowledge and understanding, which is that, you know, these obviously I don't think that they should have the right to disrupt my class. They, they, you know, expressing yeah. their opinion is one thing, but, but, but I don't they, believe... They want to, like, you know, they want to... I realize, yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. I don't believe that shouting at them, that trying to engage with them, like, so I see them as transgressing certain principles of, say, the open society that I hold very dear, that I think are the way we achieve knowledge and understanding and the way we communicate effectively and all of that. I see them as transgressing those, just as you do. And it upsets me, and it would upset me if I were caught in the firing line, obviously. But I don't see a solution to that being to then say, oh, well, fuck it. If they're transgressing these virtues, I'm going to do the, sh the same. I'm just going to shout at these people. And I'm No, I don't see that as the way forward. I see that as stepping back from principles that I think are the way forward. You see what I'm saying? Um, yeah. So but I, I, you know, the dialogue of that moment in that classroom is not the dialogue about, you know, philosophy. It's not the dialogue about words. It's the dialogue about power. It's the, you know, mechanics of the tribe. It's mechanics of the, you know, who is alpha here. And I don't necessarily think that you should shout, but I do think that the only way you can win the situation within the situation is to show that the situation is, in fact, under control by you, not by them. But I'm not trying and to win that situation, you see. I wouldn't be trying to win that individual situation. I would hopefully be playing the longer game. You see, I don't see every interaction as an interaction that one tries to win. I see it as part of a longer process. And I see myself... Uh, as a very small component in that process as well. So I see it as my duty to the process, to the extent that I buy into this uh, framework. I see it as my duty to uphold the values of that framework, even at the cost of not winning a specific encounter. Um, so, yeah, I don't see... I, they are saying but this is about those... power. I'm saying don't, don't buy in, don't get it, you know try and shut them down in some demonstration of your power because no, that you know it's it's shutting them down. It's more like you can do many other things, you know, you can chant with them, you know. So you can like there are multiple things you can do. I don't know what, you know, I would do if I was in you know situation of those lecturers. I have no idea. But I would probably go something along the lines of making them ridiculous, right? Sure. Either chanting with them or, you know, openly discussing their, you know, posters that they have or laughing at them, like something like that. Because the, like, they're fighting on the level that, it's not the level of words and meaning. They're fighting on the level of power. And so if you're not fighting with them on that level, you're losing by default. And so... Yeah, you might make, you know, it's not so much, it can go further than this one encounter. It can go, you know, it's fine to lose one encounter, but then, you know, they will come again and again and again until you shut down entirely. 
Yeah, I don't know that that's true. Um, there, Yes, there are many ways you could approach the individual circumstance, and I don't know exactly what I would do in that moment, but I still believe that not even necessarily engaging in that power struggle. You know, you keep saying they're not arguing on the level of ideas and philosophy. They're arguing on the level of power. To some extent, the idea, to some extent, the problem with what they are doing is that they are arguing on that level. Um, They actually, they've already accepted their ideas. You know, they're no longer critically interrogating their ideas. They've adopted a set of ideas that they feel gives them carte blanche to now, you know, go to this other level, as you say, to be engaging on the level of power. The whole thing that we're trying to move away from is people doing that. Um, That is exactly what we have. That's the problem that we have with what they are doing. So not accepting the bait, so to speak, like not jumping in to the dirty water with them, not ro- you know, not rolling around with them in the mud that they love, um, to me is part of winning the longer game, if you want to put it in, in terms of winning or in, in you know, game theoretical terms. It's an iterated series of but games. I just... Yeah, sorry? Yeah, but they're not they're not strong in that, you know, game of the mud. They they only go there because they know that you won't go there. They only go there because they know they have that way of doing things that you don't accept. And therefore it makes them stronger because they have a field of battle that you choose not to go at all. But if you go there, you are stronger than them because they aren't you know prepared to face any conflict whatsoever on those grounds. I know, you know, it's a romantic idea and it has some validity. It's essentially the bully. You know, somebody comes and tries to bully you. If you just punch them in the nose, the bully will realise that they don't have the strength that they thought, that they're actually a coward, and you will back them down. I mean, they are. Actually, that's actually a good thing. They are bullies. They are. Yeah, they are. Totally. But I, I, you know, I don't think, you know, you and I have been arguing or debating this kind of point for years, and I don't think we're going to quite get through it right now. I want to jump, so we'll just leave that for now. Um, yeah. I just, I want to quickly jump, purely self-indulgently, I guess, to the, the final point that Deutsch makes, which is the claim that, you know, Greeks were exploring and they, you know, they went to India and they encountered diverse philosophies there and, or they encountered diverse worldviews there. And then what they did in response to that was invent philosophy. I mean, that's a massive oversimplification of history. Um, I think the, the interconnectedness of the ancient world is very, very interesting. And I think one of the, um, you know, and I mean, he paints a picture as though, you know, the Greeks were there on their own and they didn't have, you know, exposure to all these other civilizations. But then they went to India and they encountered different things and then they created philosophy. I mean, they were always very interconnected, as you know very well, with many different civilizations, um, you know, prior to, to he's talking about, you know, the 5th century BC kind of period. So long prior to that, they were part of an interconnected um, web of civilizations, and they kind of always have been. But I think there is a really interesting parallel between 
5th century BC Greece and 5th century BC India. And I think it really relates, this might sound really esoteric if anyone's still listening at this point, um, I think it relates actually really well to, the, to what we're discussing right now because they both have, at that period, a diversity of different philosophical schools springing up. Now, they both had some diversity of schools before that, particularly India, but there was a big, like a plethora, kind of an explosion of different philosophical schools around that time in both areas. And very interestingly, and we don't know to what extent, although there obviously was some uh, exchange of ideas between them at that point, and that increased a lot more, you know, in, in Alexander's time, you know, a little bit later, but... It's very interesting that in the different, you know, like there's an, there, there are the atomists, the famous Greek atomists, Democritus and Lurchippus, and then there are atomists at exactly the same time in ancient India. You know, there are completely materialist philosophies. There are monist philosophies which are idealistic and, you know, take consciousness as fundamental. There are dualist philosophies. Like many of the major divisions in metaphysics in basically the ultimate views of reality are paralleled in both Greece and India in the 5th century BC, which I think is really interesting. But what's special about those times, I think, um, or a special thing about them that is very parallel to what we're talking about with the open society, is that they're both times in which polemicism, public argument and debate amongst philosophical schools became a really, really big thing. They both became very, very polemical societies, or at least at the level of their philosophers, they were very polemical. So we see this open society kind of model, conjectures and refutations, one school of philosophy saying reality is like this, and everybody being free to jump in and criticise. And, you know, famously, that also characterises the beginning of, of Buddha's journey because he saw all these people arguing about reality and every contradictory claim was, was on the table and he said, you know, you're all full of shit, basically. Um, the ultimate truth is emptiness, etc. But my, my only point is that it does seem... We like not weird, but it does seem like there was this massive advance in philosophy in 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 knowledge in both of those places around that time, and I think it's not coincidental that they were both kind of open societies at that time, at least at the level of ideas. Yeah, maybe, but maybe there is some you know parallelism in the which culture evolves. So maybe mm. you know both open society and philosophies like that, they are, you know, necessitated by just the cultural progress. So when you reach a certain stage, you have that. And then, you know, when you have that, you kind of go to the next stage and then you understand the uh, universe better. And since the universe is made in the same way in Greece and in India, yeah. you kind of <laughs> come to certain the same conclusions. Absolutely. But it's not, you know, it's not the only parallelism in uh, history that, uh, like, that I am aware of. of uh, there is, like, you know, in terms of, you know, rises of, of monotheistic religions, they will be very similar, you mm -hmm. know, across the globe. Mm -hmm. Then when you have uh, certain, like, Confucianism is, you know, like, I don't remember what it coincides with, but... Where? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's again... But, yeah, basically... 
like the age of philosophy yeah, is... in ancient China. I mean, it, it, it pretty much coincides with what we're talking about in India and Greece as well. You know, <laughs> Confucianism and Taoism and... Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, all comes to... It's like as if, you know, humanity goes through stages mm. uh, that are, uh, like, if you're on the track, you will reach that stage. Yeah. And if you're on the same track, somebody else you will reach that stage at the same time sure i mean my own my only yeah i completely agree with that and i think that's sort of implicit in in what i was saying i mean the one question is how much actual exchange was there the other question is how much coherence or congruence is there amongst these philosophical schools because of their being actually constrained by reality as you said the universe is the same in these different places so maybe you do converge on the same answers because of something deep and true about reality and of course, you know, we can have an interesting discussion about the way that things that are seemingly contradictory can both be somewhat true. You know, Parmenides' view of the universe as this one big, static, unchanging block is kind of true. And then Heraclitus, his exact philosophical opposite, everything is change, all is process. Well, that's definitely true. So... You know, that's another interesting aside. I guess my only point was that there are periods, and we've seen reversals. It's definitely true that we've seen reversals. It's not that you reach this state of open philosophical inquiry and then you stay there forever. Um, And, you know, that's an interesting lesson. Will we stay here forever now? I mean, I tend to think that we will, but maybe not. But there are these stages, as you say, cultures evolve to, and all I'm saying is that situations or stages characterized by a great deal of uh, philosophical heterogeneity and open argument but amongst schools seem to be stages of great progress in philosophy. Like, we're still absolutely fascinated with ancient Greek philosophy. We are, you know, in the West, to the extent that we know about it, we are extremely fascinated with ancient Indian philosophy. You know, the more I read about it, the more fascinating it is. Same with ancient Chinese philosophy. These things go very, very deep. And I think that one of the things that makes them such interesting periods when, you know, wisdom and knowledge that we still hold dearly today was derived is partly because of this openness and this critical um, you know, flow of ideas and just the freedom to criticise. So they're not periods, even though many individuals might have been dogmatic, and of course, you know, famously Socrates is, you know, supposedly ordered to kill himself because he is um, you know, advocating atheism or insulting the gods. So there's certainly dogma around, but they are not really dogmatic periods. They are kind of open societies. Well, yeah, Science. I mean, then I guess you have to be happy that, yeah. you know, people know what it is. I am. It's chewing their adults, the philosophy, and say, you don't know what's truth. I uh, you know we should figure it out, kind of. I am happy, and I like I, I, not taking not taking dogmas for granted. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm for that. Yeah. that's why you know to I guess finish it all off. Mm. I'm not. Uh, I, I was not with principles when you said you know mm. we need to give certain principles mm. because principles then you know unless you uh, grow into them unless you you know like 
figure them out yourself, they essentially useless because you just take them as dogma. Totally. You don't know how we, you know, yeah. came to those principles. You need to come to them yourself. Mm. So you, you, if you're teaching somebody, you know, principles, you need to teach how you get there, how you validate them, and how you see that they're actually true. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and I certainly wasn't implying otherwise when I said principles. And at the same time, you know, I was really just trying to extract what Deutsch was saying. He was saying, why are people so attract? Why are young people yeah. reacting to Jordan Peterson and very attracted to the idea of rules? And then we were talking about what can a parent give their children? And in some sense, I mean, we all have to grow into and learn, you know, and to the extent that we had even remotely competent parents, we all had moments growing up where we suddenly were like, oh my gosh, you know, that thing that I, you know, I always thought my dad was, you know, annoying and boring and old for saying that thing, that, you know, principle that he always repeats. Wow, that is actually true. Um, so, yeah, I'm not saying that any set of rigid principles can be given, of course. I mean, that would be the opposite of my general... You know?